Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's day 347 of our daily walk through the Word with Jesus, one chapter per day. I'm Michael Telercio, an intern at Forest Hill Presbyterian Church. That was most of my family that you just saw, and it was indeed nighttime, but it's not today. Uh, it is not at this moment. It is daytime, and we're glad that you're joining us as we continue walking through the book of Judges at present. We're on chapter 12 this morning, and just a thought for us to open with. What if your life depended on your ability to say a tongue twister? Correctly, that is. We have an instance in which something of that sort plays out in today's passage. So um, let's find out how we get there. Uh, and let's see what God is teaching us today in the midst of this situation that we read of. Let's ask for his help as we begin. Father, thank you that you've given us Judges 12. Thank you that it follows on to the story of Jephthah in Judges 11 and that we are seeing how you and your people are interacting uh, and how they're interacting with one another. And we pray, Father, that as the passage that we're going to read uh, teaches us about the people and their need for a better ruler. We pray that we would see the true ruler in Jesus and that we would long for him, the true judge, the true king, the true savior. Uh, may we be prepared even more today, having listened to your word uh, and thought about it, uh, to worship him and to be ready for his return as the true king. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Judges chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to them, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said, No, they said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years, and Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had thirty sons and thirty daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan, and thirty daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, the son of Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judged Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried at Parathon in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. 
Jephthah's an interesting guy. As we saw in the previous chapter, he's a man who is both wise and foolish. Uh, he knows his Bible history, but he doesn't quite know the character of the God of his Bible. We saw that in how he interacted with the king of Ammon at first, very prudently, very uh, intelligently, very cautiously. He appealed to what he knew about his people's history when the king of Ammon was complaining about the Israelites and saying that they have unfairly taken over territory that wasn't theirs. He knew that his people, his the Israelites, Jephthah's people, hadn't done that, that they had only taken over territory that the Lord had allotted to them, and that it was hundreds of years ago. So the complaint of the Ammonite king was just unfounded. So we saw him exercise wisdom in that regard, but we also saw him acting very foolishly and making a rash vow to the Lord, promising that if the Lord would give him victory over the Ammonites, that he would offer up as a burnt offering whatever uh, first came out of his gates when he returned home. And tragically, we saw that he followed through on that rash vow and offered up his daughter in sacrifice. Now, some have softened that a bit, and they've interpreted that latter half of chapter 11 of Judges uh, with regard to Jephthah's daughter and her weeping for her virginity. To, they've read that in such a way where they've concluded that Jephthah didn't really kill his daughter in sacrifice, but merely uh, dedicated her in some way uh, to the service of the Lord where she wouldn't marry uh, kind of like a nun. And that the sad part about the text is that Jephthah's family line and his daughter's family line would come to an end since she was his only daughter and she would never marry. The text is a little more clear than that. And that means that the vow that Jephthah made is a little more terrible than that. Because as the passage says, he promised to offer up whatever first came out of his gates as a burnt offering to the Lord. And then verse 39 tells us that he followed through on that vow that he had made. So Jephthah's a mixture of wisdom and folly. And we see that in today's passage as well. In chapter 12, the passage opens with the Ephraimites complaining against Jephthah that he ignored them when he went to war with the Ammonites. And he says in verse 2, uh, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. So there's this detail that Jephthah provides that we didn't get from chapter 11 that may or, not, may, or may not be something that actually happened. Jephthah is claiming that he called on the people of Ephraim for help and that they didn't come through. Well, whether or not that actually happened... The fact of the matter is the complaint of the Ephraimites against Jephthah is totally unfounded. Jephthah is reasoning with them, but only up until verse 3. He makes it clear that they are trying to fight against him, but then in verse 4 we read that Jephthah fights against them. He gathers all the men of Gilead and fights with Ephraim. Now this is a problem. And this is a turning point in the book of Judges because we're seeing very clearly not Israel fighting with a foreign group of people who are oppressing them, but Israel fighting with Israel. We see the men of Gilead, who are actually of the people of the tribe of Manasseh, fighting against the people of the tribe of Ephraim. And if you recall back from Genesis, you'll know that the people of Manasseh and the people of Ephraim ought to be the closest that any two tribes could be because they descended from the sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim. And now we see infighting amongst 
two brothers, essentially, right? All the tribes come from the 12 sons, uh, more or less, the 12 sons of Israel. And we see this civil war emerging. This is a terrible moment in the history of God's people. And it's awful because not only is there this infighting, there's this twisted sort of uh, follow-up to, to the infighting. So we see the people of Gilead warring against the people of Ephraim. But then we also see uh, this follow-up in which the people of Gilead have taken control of the Jordan, a part of the Jordan, and they have stationed men there such that if the people of Ephraim, even perhaps, who knows how long, months maybe, sometime after the, the fight itself, if people from Ephraim want to go over the Jordan, the people of Gilead are asking, are you an Ephraimite? And the people of Ephraim were lying, trying to get across, and they would say no. And then the people of Gilead would say, well, then pronounce this word. Kind of like, pronounce this tongue twister. And so they would have to say this word shibboleth, and because they had an accent, for whatever reason, they would say sibboleth. They couldn't pronounce it correctly. So he says shibboleth by the seashore, and he says sibboleth by the seashore, and dies if he says it that way. If he doesn't get the tongue twister right, that's that. And it was horrible because there were 42,000 people of the tribe of Ephraim that were killed as a result of this civil war. 42,000 men killed, not at the hands of the king of Ammon, not at the hands of the Midianites or the hands of the Canaanites or any other foreign people group, but at the hands of the people of a tribe from Israel. It's a dark moment in the history of God's people. And it's only going to get darker. In fact, Jephthah, for all of his pluses and all of the benefits that he afforded to God's people and saving them from the Ammonites, was just one judge on a downward spiral to an even worse judge that we'll read about next time. But God is still using these judges and he's still pointing his people forward toward a judge who will come and not just be a judge, but will actually be a king because the people of Israel need a king. And we'll see that as the book of Judges progresses, this refrain that develops toward the end of the book, that there was no king in Israel and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. They need a king. And interestingly, in the last three judges that are mentioned in these last few verses of today's passage, we get glimpses of the king that God would send to his people. The first is in the verse 8, the mention of Ibsen of Bethlehem. Now, it's fitting that here in mid-December, we're getting a, a reference to Bethlehem, being that it's Advent. And we know that the king that God would eventually send to deliver his people from their enemies and to deliver them from the sin in them that would lead them to engage in civil war is from the city, from the town of Bethlehem. Jesus would be born there. But he would also, shortly thereafter, with his family, move to the land that is that Zebulun actually is part of, the land of Galilee, Zebulun and Naphtali. And we read of Zebulun because it's the place in verse 11 where Elon, the next judge, comes from. That's actually the only detail we get about Elon, that he was from Zebulun. And he was buried in Agilon in the land of Zebulun. And interesting that our king, Jesus, 
would reside in Zebulun and Naphtali, the land of Galilee, which was in, in his day treated as if it wasn't really part of God's territory, the land of the Israelites. It was kind of seen as Samaritan territory. And yet Jesus lived there. Almost in a way, he's uniting the southern portion, being born in Bethlehem of Israel, with the northern portion, Galilee and Zebulun and Naphtali and that land. He was an Israelite through and through. And in the final judge, we see this interesting detail. Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, who also judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. Now, at that time, we get a picture of a man who is starting to try to build an empire. He's got all of these sons, presumably from multiple wives, because it's quite difficult, I would imagine, to have 40 sons from one wife. So he likely has multiple wives, and he has all of these sons and these grandsons, and they're riding around with pomp and circumstance, right, on these donkeys. In his day, donkeys were probably very likely a symbol of uh, prestige, of of position. Skip ahead many years later to the time of Jesus, who rides toward into Jerusalem, uh, toward not a victory over uh, his enemies, or especially not over his people uh, in warfare, but he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, a symbol of humility, on his way to the cross to die for his people. Far from pronouncing civil war and initiating civil war on his people, he actually would die in their place for their sins, for the kind of sin that would lead to civil war in the first place. Jesus died for that, for his people. But Jesus didn't just die for God's people. He was raised to life again for them. And that is our hope as his people, that we don't have merely a judge who would deliver God's people from oppressors, but then oppress them himself. We have the hope in Jesus of complete, comprehensive forgiveness for all that we've done wrong, such that we can interact with the God of the universe, the God of the true Israel, as his beloved own children. And we can have all of the confidence that as we live life now, we don't have to try to protect our reputations like the people of Gilead were when they were being mocked by the people of Ephraim. We don't have to worry about making a name for ourselves. We don't have to try to get back at others when they wrong us or when they level charges against us that are just completely ridiculous. We can trust that there's a judge who has come to deal with all of our sin and who will return as a conquering king and make everything right. We can trust him. Let's look to him. Let's go to him now in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given Jesus to your people. Thank you that in this account from Judges chapter 12, we get these little insights pointing us forward to not merely a judge, but a king who would save us. Save us from what we deserve, which is wrath and punishment, and also who would make things right upon his return. In this Advent season, we pray that we would look back to what he has done when he came the first time with humility and great gratitude, and even fear and trembling, and that we would look forward to his return 
in the same way, with humility and gratitude and in fear and trembling. We pray that we would call others to take refuge in the King that is coming back one day, to take refuge in Him now before He comes back, and that we would look forward to His return with fear and trembling, with humility and gratitude. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is going to return one day. Let's live in light of that reality. Let's live in light of the reality that when he comes, there will be judgment. Judgment more strict and severe than that which even Jephthah tried to mete out upon God's people wrongly. Jesus will exercise justice rightly, and it will be even more severe than what Jephthah did. Let's live in light of that today. Be well, brothers and sisters. God be with you.